RNZ National, it's time now to join Hayden Donnell for Midweek Media Watch. And Hayden's on Skype tonight. Kia ora, Hayden. Kia ora, Karen. I hear your voice has got a bit of a frog in it. Yeah, I'm not too well. I haven't been too well. So I'm bravely soldiering on in service of Her Majesty's Radio New Zealand. (laughs) Okay. You want to start with a column from journalist Andrea Vance where she called the government's supposed transparency... I use that uh, supposed because that's what the column is about because she says that transparency is an artfully crafted mirage. Yeah, that's right. It's set off a bit of a a firestorm of debate, this column. Uh, And it it is probably because of the government coming in saying it was going to be open and transparent and there was going to be a a real change and there was going to be so much more information shared. Andrea Vance is saying that is absolutely incorrect. Uh, It's actually secretive and overly controlling of the information it puts out. And the story, her story criticizes both politicians and government departments for employing ballooning, increasing numbers of communication staff uh, and, yeah, as you say, she says that Jacinda Ardern's reputation for authentic and open communication is an artfully crafted mirage, and the reality could not be more different. Yeah, we don't tend to think of communications staff when we think of the government, but, uh, you know, they have, they have a lot of PR people around them, don't they? So Andrea's investigated this, and what evidence has she come up with? Yeah, she puts together a reasonably detailed case to support her conclusions. She she does, as you say, she points to the fact that both politicians and not just them, but the government ministries are taking on dozens of new comms staff. So one of the examples, Waka Kotahi, is apparently employing 72 comms staff now, up from 26 five years ago. Uh, the notoriously secretive <laughs> Ministry of Health has apparently taken to refusing phone calls from journalists and only replying via email, she says. Uh, she says government agencies also routinely, and this is a, this is something that's been going on for a long time, but routinely fail to comply with the OIA, the Official Information Act, and as evidence cites several Official Information Act delays that she's complained about to the ombudsman recently, and she's actually gotten apologies for those. Uh, that's just delays in getting the information that she's requested. Yeah, unjustifiable delay. So there are some some reasons that, that the government can give, uh, you know, whether it's just staff time, there's other things that they can give for delaying it. But in this case, there's no real justifiable reason to not give her the information and yet it gets delayed. This is happening all the time to journalists. There's always anecdotal reports about this, you know, stuff being delayed and having to go to the ombudsman and taking weeks and weeks and months to come to them. And is that so that the story might go off the bubble and they'll lose interest? Yeah. Well, there's this, I guess, this idea that the government's trying to work out either either to just delay and, and make it irrelevant, the story, or just work out exactly how their comm strategy is going to work out once they give themselves a bit more time, I guess. And, I mean, what, another thing that Vance doesn't mention in her column, but there's been several recent examples of politicians uh, removing confrontational interviews from their schedule. So you might remember Grant Robertson dropped his regular date with Magic Talks' Peter Williams after, well, to be fair, Peter Williams mentioned a conspiracy theory on air. And Jacinda Ardern famously removed her weekly interview with Mike Hosking from the schedule. So, I mean, these some of these issues are longstanding. Some of these decisions might be justifiable. Uh, and at least some of the comm staffers that she actually points to, they might be replacing contractors, for instance. 
but it does overall paint a picture of a government apparatus that's at least highly committed to message control. You, you said heated debate, so what was the criticism? Yeah, <laughs> I, I mean, it's mainly online. I go on Twitter and places like this, but a lot of people did disagree with Vance specifically First of all, on the subject of OIA responses, some pointed out that apparently there's statistics that show about 97% of OIAs are returned on time, though, to be fair, there have been other instances where these kinds of government statistics are at least a little bit questionable recently. There's some police stats that uh, were inaccurate. Uh, and, and there is a broader note <laughs> that people have struck on, and I, I saw the columnist Josh Drummond uh, talking about this, he said that basically comms staff counter the media's instinct for the negative and the scandalous. And so his quote, you know, can I just propose that a huge reason that comms people exist is that without them, no one would hear about the good or competent things that public organizations do, or even hear that they do things at all, at all because the media is primarily interested in conflict and incompetence. Oh, right. So uh, that they're employed to promote the good things. Yeah, yes. Well, I guess they're there as a counterweight, right? Because we're talking about, no, it's not necessarily that anyone is lying in this situation, right? It's just a case study in how what you select to highlight can obscure the truth. You know, I actually worked in comms for 18 months for my sins earlier in my career, and I was never asked to lie. I was actually a little bit surprised about that. But equally, it's not like I was pitching journalists on all the faults and foibles of the mayor that I was working for either. So if I'd been in charge of the news, I would have painted a pretty incomplete and inaccurate picture. But then I guess someone like Josh Drummond is saying, on the other hand, just highlighting the negative, just honing in on the stuff that public organizations are doing wrong also creates a distorted impression because when your news pages are devoted to finding the worst things happening in any given government agency and putting the worst possible spin on them, then it won't give people an accurate overarching view of that organization, which is a government organization, which is like every organization, probably mostly filled with good people trying to do good work. Yes, this is a bit of a catch-22. Is there a solution to it? Yeah, well, I mean, I, the, the thing is, this it's not like journalists are negative for no reason. It's actually a really important journalistic value. And, and it's because it's vital to hold these public organizations to account. They're meant to be working for you, et cetera, et cetera. And when you think about it, this commitment to actually finding faults has really improved our systems, most notably for COVID-19. How much was our MIQ system, for instance, improved by Michael Mora exposing its failings? And how much longer would those failings have continued if it wasn't for the scrutiny he provided and others provided? So... Yeah, at the same time, I get it. You know, public servants and even politicians could feel aggrieved that the good things they do go unnoticed and unreported. And there are real down, downsides to that, other than just, I mean, who cares about this, but their hurt feelings. Um, you know, imparting a vision of a profligate and negligent state apparatus can hamper the government's ability to actually achieve stuff because people just think that they're incompetent. And that, that makes governments, you know, conservative and scared. Uh, so maybe there is some case for pulling back on some, at least, of the more sensational or relentless negativity in favour of a bit of nuance. Just for instance, like people on social media and especially comms staffers pointed out that 
for instance, people wouldn't have been so clear on the instructions in our COVID-19 response if it wasn't for the good work of comms staffers. And and also you'll have stuff like, you know, Jervois Key in Wellington was closed the other day for pipe repairs and you won't get that necessarily if it's not for comm staffers. So they are doing good work as well. So they were talking to each other via social media on Twitter, for example, and were the comms staffers uh, asking the journalists to you know, understand their position? Yeah, and I, that's pretty galling, right, to see in some ways comms staffers talking about how wonderful they are and how good their work is. When you're a journalist and you see that they've got five times the pay probably and ten times the help, you know, there's some estimates that there's, Ten, that the ratio of comm staffers to journalists is 10 to 1 now. So as much as we can criticise journalistic framing, the balance of power here is increasingly out of whack, and that's pretty much undeniable. So for all the points about good work that PR people do, it remains true that one of their roles is always going to be to shield officials and their bosses from harsh scrutiny. And uh, that's especially PR people. There are distinctions between PR people and cops people. I get that. But as the NZ Me journalist Francis Cook noted, even com staffers setting up a YouTube channel to say nice things about their organizations, they're still trying to control the message and the flow of information. And com staff may have this role to play in providing a counterbalance to the prevailing negativity of journalism, but their job is getting easier and more well-resourced while the opposite is happening for journalists. It's getting harder and newsrooms are getting trimmed. And that's a concern. You know, this is not an equal playing field. This is not an even playing field. And it means that you're getting a distorted picture of the government because of the preponderance and dominance of common staff. And, Maybe journalists and comm staff need each other, but they probably need each other and balance each other out in some ways, but that is always going to be a concern. I, I was interested that uh, Andrea points out that Jacinda Ardern uh, has four press secretaries. Yes, but that's, this, is a, this is a thing. like That's not unusual. That's the same as Bill English, John Key. And she also says that, for instance, ministers now have two press secretaries. That's not apparently necessarily the case. There's some that have one and some that have two and some that have three. Uh, in general, though, there are more comm staffers and more PR people uh, working on controlling the narrative, making sure that the government uh, has its ducks in a row. Well, speaking of journalists uh, having some difficulty doing their jobs, the Climate Change Commission delivered its final advice to the government this morning. And when its draft advice came out in February of this year, journalists complained that they hadn't been given enough time to digest the report. So were things different today? Not really. This is an interesting thing. So when the draft report came out in February... All these journalists complained that they'd only been given a few hours and it was 600 pages long. And they, there was also a problem back then. They complained that the commission was playing favourites because apparently some journalists who apparently knew or were familiar with climate change um, reporting had been given access to the re- report earlier. Uh, so that wasn't there today. It seems like everyone got the report at the same time. But this, the, 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 the first complaint, they didn't have enough time, that was still present. They got the report uh for, they had it for 40 minutes. They had to digest it before they, um, and it was 400 pages long before they had to report on it. So um, Joe Moyer, at uh, the political editor at Newsroom, said if the Climate Change Commission has any issue with the level of in-depth reporting on this, they'll be able to thank themselves. 
Uh. <laughs> All right, so 40 minutes before what? Before the official release, before the media? 40 minutes to go through 400 pages, right? And, and I mean, there are officials there. Those comm staffers that we mentioned, they're there to help, but it's... Uh, it's a pretty tough ask for the journalists to go through all of that extremely detailed and quite complex information and report it, given the amount of time that they had. Yeah, but 40 minutes before what? Uh, I think it was before the embargo, so they were kind oh, of I see. in the lock. Yeah. Right, before they were able to actually start reporting on it. They got it 40 minutes. That's yes. 40 minutes, what did you say, 400 pages. That's 10 pages a minute. I don't believe that any of them truly got through it. So I'm sure there's a summary page. We've all been there. We've all done the summary. It would have meant that, the, I mean, the Climate Change Commission, they will want these journalists to give really in-depth reporting on it. Uh, but uh, they will want to actually have really considered stuff come out. Uh, and that's not necessarily possible. And you saw that in, in how it worked. Like, I mean, Luke Malpass at stuff, he, he, he took the checkered flag first. He got there first. But uh, you know, it took a while for other people to put their their reporting out. Mark Delder at Newsroom, it took him a few hours. The Herald Science reporter, Jamie Morden, he produced a detailed explainer, but it came out at 4.30pm. So coverage did take place, but it was just a little bit delayed. You know, fair enough. I saw a lot of bullet point reporting this afternoon, which is actually quite helpful because you really just want to know the gist of it when you're in a hurry. Uh, but perhaps there'll be some uh, you know, bigger feature articles on it coming up. Yeah, I think that that will obviously be the case. And in some ways, it's probably not the biggest deal. There will be proper reporting on it, and it's not necessarily the amount of time that journalists get before it comes out. <laughs> That's the issue. It's the actual quality of the journalists involved. A lot of the most ill-informed commentary last time came from people who just hadn't read the report at all and seemed to comment based on uh, just general vibes. Uh, so take this from Magic Talk's Peter Williams. But this is going to happen. Yeah. In, in 10 years from now, you will not be able to buy uh, a, a, a nice Japanese or European car powered by petrol or diesel. Mm. You, you will not be able to yeah, do that. Yeah, well, maybe so, Peter. False. Opin- opinion? Not, true. not fact. <laughs> not, not fact. Uh, the commission does want to wind down petrol car imports by 2032, uh, but... There will still be plenty of petrol cars around after that. You'll be able to buy them for some time yet. Uh, Williams might have known that if he'd read the report, but he later admitted that he hadn't. This is from February. Yeah, but this whole report, I don't know, haven't read the, the whole thing or anything. Well, no, nobody has, really, because 800 pages, but uh, it's only come out in tracy fashion so far. That's right. So Peter hadn't actually read it. He was commenting on it, though. In the end, it's likely that good journalists will find a way to cover the report well, despite the lack of prep time. Uh, but no matter how much lead-in you give, there's no fixing laziness. Right, Hayden, you also wanted to talk about a questionable decision by TVNZ to air this documentary on a man accused of sexual harassment. That's right. On Monday, TVNZ went to air with a documentary from Australia, Australia's Channel 7 on the former Neighbours star Craig McLaughlin, and he... You might not know he was accused of sexual harassment by three actresses who worked with him on the stage production of The Rocky Horror Show in 2014. That case went to court in 2019, and McLaughlin was acquitted. And this documentary titled Spotlight, Craig McLaughlin is... I mean, it's just a weird watch, first of all. I mean, it's incredibly overwrought. And stuff reviewer Chris Schultz described it as like being something out of the Marvel Cinematic Universe. There's this orchestral soundtrack and sort of dark foreboding notes and 
and and there's these moody drone shots of McLaughlin surfing on the beach at night. And it's also incredibly slanted in favour of its subject. It often shows him weeping and accusing people of plotting against him, saying they've ruined his life. Uh, it, it features really very little of the point of view of his alleged victims. So this is McLaughlin speaking, and it's a pretty good example of the tone overall. Imagine if I had evidence that indicated that the media manipulated people to say certain things to destroy me. Predatory. Do that again. There's predatory in there. They knew exactly what they were doing, those journalists. They knew exactly what they were doing. Yeah, so that's Craig McLaughlin uh, speaking to Channel 7 about what he sees as his ordeal. Well, why was he still trying to defend himself when he was acquitted? What, what was the point? Well, he's, his, his big point of contention is that he hasn't worked and he has basically been ostracised from show business over there. And he really wants to portray himself as being the victim of a big sort of concocted plot against him by the media. And the big bit of evidence for that that he has is that he... You heard a little bit of it in that clip. He shows his accusers seemingly being coached and what to say about him by the ABC documentary crew. So there's a footage of uh, them apparently, the, the woman who accused him of sexual harassment, apparently being told what to say by a producer. However, this isn't quite the smoking gun that it is made out to be. So while Channel 7 presents this as evidence of a cooked-up plot against McLaughlin, the ABC, the documentary crew that actually did that uh, interviewed those women in the first place they responded that this evidence of manipulation was itself manipulated and it says that those clips that were taken out of context by uh, channel seven actually came at the end of a long interview and what was actually happening was that the women were being asked to repeat things that they've said earlier in the interview in a more concise way and the abc insists that's pretty standard practice for tv uh, and there's also the fact that these weren't the only statements that these women made? No, and that's the point that the ABC's kind of hammered, that these are women that are, you know, they have minds of their own and they're independent and they can make their own uh, statements. They made them in court as well. They did the, they testified there. And the magistrate sitting on that case, even though McLaughlin was acquitted, he actually said that the woman there were brave and honest witnesses. And by contrast, he said that McLaughlin was uh, not, he said that he was not seeming genuine. So even though he acquitted McLaughlin, uh, he actually said that the woman were telling the truth in court. So how has TVNZ's decision to air this documentary, how's it gone down? Uh, not too well with some, some, obviously. Victims campaigner Louise Nicholas has called the decision to air it irresponsible. She says it re-traumatizes victims and potentially discourages other people who have suffered sexual violence from coming forward. So I, just seeing getting 90 minutes of basically completely sympathetic coverage and being able to say that he's a victim of a plot, of course, she's worried that some people will be seeing that and they'll see that maybe their abuser or the alleged abuser will get similar treatment or they will feel like their stories won't be believed. So she is um, Louise Nicholas is worried about that, and she pointed out that TVNZ had screened a similarly themed program called I Am Not a Rapist last month. And has TVNZ defended its decision to, to broadcast it in any way, or they've yeah, just left it, it? 
it released a statement which I, I thought was a, kind of inadequate in a way. It said that the show was just looking at McLaughlin's trial by media and uh, it says that the program is a personal story. It makes no wider claims about sexual assault allegations. The thing that I find a bit hard to swallow about that is, is that you can't just say that this is an isolated story and it has no implications for anything else. Because, of course, a viewer seeing that is going to transpose their own experiences onto the top of it. They're going to see themselves in the situation of the victims or um, they'll see themselves in the situation of the, the abuser, uh, the alleged abuser. Uh, the alleged victims, uh, they'll they'll take it as a lesson. So I kind of see it as there was a, there was a, there's another situation recently where News Hub puts out a question of the day every day, and one of its questions of the day was, "Oh, should trans athletes be allowed to compete in the Commonwealth Games?" And it um, just put that to the audience. And I see it as this kind of situation where you've got vulnerable people and vulnerable groups that you're handling here, and you're kind of handling them without the requisite level of care and you're just using them as a point of debate or or a way to scandalize an audience and i i i find that a little bit hard to swallow and it's also to me pretty incongruous because the day earlier just on sunday tvnz had aired a actually reasonably compelling segment on consent on a sunday show and that was sourced from another australian tv broadcaster channel nine and the segment was titled rage of consent it took on subjects like rape culture and obviously consent, and it told it through personal stories. It had victims at its centre, and it imparted a constructive rather than a destructive message. And I thought it was pretty much everything that Spotlight Craig McLaughlin was not, and it's a shame that those programming standards couldn't be more across the board. Hayden, thank you very much for joining us from your sickbed. Are, are you there with the duvet around you? Your shoulders no, I am in a dressing gown. I'm in a dressing gown and I'm clutching a heater. <laughs> <laughs> don't don't get too close to the heater. Thanks for joining us, and we'll talk to you in a couple of weeks' time. Thanks, Karen.